Our culture worships the wiki god. Wiki is a type of website that allows collaborative editing of its content. Anyone can become an expert on anything. We are currently living in a time that has taken this type of editable approach to theology. We want ever so desperately to serve a deity whom we have the freedom and capability to edit. Many people are attempting to revise Christian beliefs by cutting out what they don't like, copying favorable ideas from other worldviews, and pasting them into some hopeless attempt at a hybrid faith. Instead of editing who God is to align with our expectations, we must align ourselves with the Bible to help us understand what God has shown us concerning Himself. We need the revelation of God's truth more than the expression of our opinions. We don't need our versions of God. We simply need God. This is Travis Agnew, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Second Mile Podcast, where we seek to live out the words of Jesus, where he said, if someone asks you to go one mile, go the second mile as well. Uh, As a follower of Jesus, we never want to do just a bare minimum, but we want to do what does it mean to follow him all the way, all in, uh, with everything that we've got. And and so today, uh, I want to talk to you about rejecting the wiki God. The first little intro that I read to you actually uh, came from the back cover uh, of a book that I just wrote called Wiki God. It came out a few days ago, and I mentioned a little bit and read a little bit from a chapter a couple weeks ago on this podcast and had some people that asked other questions and sent messages in, and that was great. And so I wanted to follow up with a little bit of understanding of of what this is. And, And the concept behind wiki God is this, is that I wanted an opportunity to write on a topic that has just changed my life, and that is the attributes of God, to getting to know who God truly is and not what we think about him, but what does the Bible teach about the attributes of God? I I read in college um, by A.W. Tozer on the attributes of God, and it sent me into a just tailwind of wanting to know the God of the Bible. In, in my time in college, just that ability to really start to learn and to read and to treasure God's Word and, and not to force my opinions or my agenda on the text, but allow the text to inform my opinions or, or to transform my agenda. And so when I, I began to really understand God's Word and to see who He is, uh, it was kind of shocking to me at, at times because He's not exactly who I thought He was going to be. And honestly, that's a welcome thing. And so the reason why I wrote Wiki God is this, is the concept is very simple. If you've gone to Wikipedia for anything, uh, you realize that there's some information out there, and some of it might be correct. But the difference uh, about Wikipedia is this, is that anyone can change the content. Now, I've served as a religion faculty uh, at a state university, and at different times when I would uh, serve in that capacity, sometimes someone would uh, have a source on a paper from Wikipedia, and I would say, hey, that's not a reliable source. And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, anybody who's got a computer and uh, can open that up and just change what's on there, and it can be just altered from one moment to the next. Uh, Wikipedia is something that it's collaborative editing, so people all jump in and can do anything. And and this is the reason why I call the book on attributes of God um, called Wiki God is because I really do believe that's what's happening in theology today is that we believe that anybody who has the opportunity on social media uh, to use their megaphone and to say, you know what? I don't think God is like that. In fact, I honestly think that's probably the theological slogan of our culture is to say, I don't think God is like that. I think he's like this. And we begin to um, just defend our own opinions and beliefs and positions on things and expect that God is going to align himself with us. And so the concept is very simple. Uh, the first chapter is kind of an introduction of um, uh, the danger of uh, trying to edit who God is. 
the last chapter is kind of a wrap-up. Uh, and then there's 18 chapters between those two of 18 specific attributes and how we address them. And, and each chapter starts with a uh, negative form. So like chapter 2 starts off as the needy God, which is all about how uh, we, we tend to think that God is somehow dependent on us and he's needy for us, um, for us to provide him uh, just connection and community and affirmation. Uh, he needs us to read the Bible and pray to him and to really put in the volunteer hours and, and collect the money to do what he needs to do. And he's really dependent upon us. And, and when you really look at it, that God is not needy, but the biblical attribute is that God is independent. That means that he is completely independent. He is without need uh, and he's not relying on us for anything. And so each chapter, those 18 chapters, uh, starts off with a negative connotation, whether it's the needy God or the video screen God or the little engine that could God, uh, you, you name it, and then it addresses one of these attributes. And so what I wanted to do was read a little bit from chapter one uh, on this podcast just to give you an understanding because I was working on this concept for a while uh, and really kept putting it down and, and not wanting to address it because honestly it was such a big um, task for me to tackle. I was, I was fearful of, of going after it. And then something happened that I remember that as I started to write it, there was this nagging reminder of, of something uh, from the Bible that really I felt like complicated everything um regarding the book because my whole premise of the book was hey it doesn't matter who got who you think God is it matters who God is right and then all of a sudden this, this nagging thought came up and that was the point of when Jesus says well Peter who do you think that I am right you remember the scene so that Jesus is sitting there he asked the disciples who do the people say that I am and they're all giving out all types of understandings and then Jesus looks at the disciples and says but who do you say that I am. And, and Peter does get the answer right, but what we normally interpret that is, see, Jesus, it didn't matter who really Jesus was, it mattered who Jesus was to Peter. And and so I really started thinking about that going, oh man, I think my whole concept for the book is kind of busted from the get-go because of what Jesus said. So I began to study the passage, and what I found out in that passage was so shocking to me uh, that I'd never seen before. Uh, there were some key things that Jesus says in there that actually uh, lit a fire under me rather than put it out uh, because I believe that what Jesus is saying even in that pivotal moment was not that Peter came up with an idea, but that God had revealed the idea, the truth to Peter. It was revealed to Peter from God. And um, and then when Peter does miss it, the, the next part of the story just absolutely blows my mind because the whole thing that I was pushing against in the book was, hey, don't let Satan tempt you to do something else. And then all of a sudden, what does Jesus call Peter? Uh, he's going to call him Satan right after this because of something specific that Peter does. So what I want to do is I just want to read uh, the last section of chapter one to give you an idea of what this book is about. And once again, just because uh, I've been living and breathing in this thing for months now, and it's kind of a way just to be able to share it here on this podcast. And once again, if you're interested, you uh, you can get the book. Um, it's available on my blog or on Amazon, uh, but don't feel like you have to. Maybe this just section of the chapter will be helpful for you. But uh, I wouldn't write if I didn't believe in it. Uh, I do believe, hopefully, that if anything can happen is that it would want you to um, at least causing you a desire uh, to know God of the Bible a whole lot more than what you have in the past. So let me read a section to you from the Editable Guide uh, from chapter one of Wicked God. A.W. Tozer was a lofty theologian and passionate pastor of the 20th century. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he presented a thesis statement that signifies the importance of addressing this issue. He wrote, 
What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. On the first read, that statement may seem a bit dramatic, but is he on to something here? If someone thinks that God is a lightning bolt throwing angry titan in the sky, that person will carefully calculate how he or she lives his or her life. If someone thinks God could care less about the chaotic condition of this planet, that person will probably not seek God for help amidst growing concerns. If someone assumes that God does not exist, the only accountability that a person can have is himself or herself. What comes to your mind when you think about God might be the most important thing about you. If Tozer is correct with the thought that our theological beliefs have the power to change every element of our lives, it is of utmost importance to make sure that our convictions are painstakingly accurate. If what comes to my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me, then I better ensure that what comes to my mind when I think about God is actually correct. I desperately need truth. If truth does exist, it is far superior and more enduring than my flighty opinions. What God says about God is far more dependable than what I say about God. One of the stories that repeatedly has come to my mind, even as I type these words, is an encounter Jesus had with Peter one day. Jesus once asked Peter's opinion concerning his own identity. At the time when Jesus asked this question to Peter, the ministry of Jesus was booming. Everywhere he went, people followed him just to see what he would do or what he would say next. Peter had a front row seat to it all. He remembered what it was like when Jesus turned one boy's lunch into a satisfying feast for thousands. Not only could he remember the taste of that meal, but he knew what it was like to haul the leftovers all the way home. Peter experienced the joy and gratitude from his entire family when Jesus healed his mother-in-law from sickness. He watched with amazement as this woman, who was uncharacteristically sidelined by fever and unable to enjoy her company, was immediately serving the people in her home due to a single touch from Jesus. Peter saw Jesus cause the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the demons to flee, and even the dead to rise. The region was abuzz. Everyone had an opinion concerning Jesus. In one of those earth-shattering conversations prompted by Jesus, he asked his disciples concerning the public consensus regarding his own identity. The disciples began to relay information which he was already aware. He just listened intently. They reported, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. After giving them his full attention, he then asked a simple question that would forever change history. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I was taught this account by many who emphasized that at this moment it didn't matter who Jesus was, it mattered who Jesus was to Peter. Jesus' objective truth was useless if it wasn't a subjective reality. That line of thinking is simply an unbiblical lie originating in the pit of hell. Peter didn't ace Jesus' pop quiz because his answer was personal. He aced it because he was correct. If Peter would have said, I have to agree with the crowds, I think you were simply another prophet, Jesus would not have congratulated him. Jesus, uh, there have been a lot of talented preachers before you, and there will be many after you who can do precisely what you're doing. Don't get me wrong, you are a great guy, but that's just it. You are just a great guy and not a great God. <laughs> With an answer like that, Jesus would not have responded in such a positive manner. 
he would not have praised Peter for his individualistic theory if his conclusion was incorrect. Jesus would never have built his church on a simple fisherman's flattering hypothesis. More than sentiment, Jesus was after truth. If you study the life and teachings of Christ, you can guarantee that he would not have responded, You know, Peter, that's not exactly what I was hoping you would say, but who am I to make such an exclusive claim to truth? If it's true to you, then I think that's just great. How could I argue with such a sincere display of authentic honesty? Let's all gather around uh, together to sing Kumbaya and have a big tolerant group hug. Jesus was never known to behave that way. Regarding truth, Jesus is gracious but not tolerant. He is too loving to allow error to continue without intervention. Jesus built his church on the truth, not on the opinion. Peter grasped the fact that Jesus was a long way to Messiah. Jesus was the one whom the people of God had been longing to behold. Everything in the Old Testament had connected the dots and colored in the picture of who this Messiah would be. And standing before Peter was the brilliantly vivid Jesus the Christ, the actual son of the living God. The king had come and the kingdom was coming. This encounter is one of the few times in the Gospels that Peter nailed something without a hint of error. Jesus responded with a play on words that you may or may not have caught at first glance. Barjona means son of Jonah. Jesus praised Peter for his answer and essentially said, Simon, your earthly father didn't reveal that to you, but your heavenly father did. I'm going to change your name to reflect that you are part of a different family now. Welcome to the family of God. How did Simon Peter get it right? because it was accurately revealed to him by none other than God. Man doesn't discover the truth. God reveals the truth. Jesus promised to build the church upon the stalwart rock of Peter's confession. At that moment, Peter understood that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of truth. Peter knew it. He confessed it. And Christ vowed that his followers would build the church not on man's opinion, but upon God's truth. For all the fumbling mistakes for which Peter is remembered, here is a glorious example of a moment when he was undeniably correct, and history would ultimately never be the same again. Riding on such a momentous spiritual occasion, Peter should have known the importance of exiting on a high note, but unfortunately he opened his mouth moments later to reveal how quickly we can fall from such theological prominence. In light of Peter's confession, Jesus began to unveil some previously concealed information. His path was clearly leading him to Jerusalem, and he was confident that he would soon suffer unjustly under the hands of the authorities who would brutally murder him there. Since the disciples were now cognizant of his identity, he wanted to prepare them for what was coming his way, and he wanted them to know he would not change course just because suffering was imminent. Still beaming from the honorary theological doctorate he had just received from none other than Jesus the Christ, Peter decided to pull the Messiah over to the side for for a little constructively critical chit-chat. Apparently, Jesus was confused, and Peter's glowing spiritual intellect was required to clear things up. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Jesus' suffering didn't fit well into Peter's Christological framework. This type of path is not what Peter envisioned. The cross would distort the image of whom Peter thought the Christ should be. Jesus was revealing the truth to Peter, and Peter didn't resonate with the content, and therefore desired to change it. God made Peter in his image, and now Peter wanted to repay the favor. He envisioned following a God who knew no suffering. The picture of the Messiah present in Peter's mind was that of the victor and not the victim. 
Peter didn't like whom God was turning out to be, and so he attempted to change him. Moments after Jesus renamed Simon as Peter, he suddenly nicknamed him Satan. Should it be to our surprise that Jesus called Peter by the name of the first one who tried to modify the identity of God? Satan endeavored to alter the personality and the activity of God, and Peter was following in his sacrilegious footsteps. Don't miss Jesus' diagnosis. Peter was not thinking about God. He was thinking about man. He wanted God to be more like him. And so do we. When we begin to discover that God is not like whom we thought he should be, we desperately want him to adjust to a mirroring type of expectations. Even if our thought processes stem from a desire to assist God in the public relations department, those efforts are in vain. Jesus interprets such blatant endeavors as mutiny. Venturing to improve God is downright satanic, and he will vehemently oppose any such efforts. If you're going to stay clear of Jesus calling you devilish monikers, then avoid any attempts at altering his identity. Stop trying to change God and learn to embrace God. No matter how we try to revere the wicked God, this deity is virtually impossible to grasp. The characteristics have changed yet again by the time we've finished reading the last draft. If we attempt to recreate the uncreated one in our image, we will find ourselves worshiping ourselves before too long. In the following pages, I want to address some misguided thinking. While worldly theology is present uh, in our culture, weak theology is often present within our churches. Instead of editing who God is to suit my fancy or your expectations, I'm going to apply to a higher authority than even you and me. I'm going to utilize scripture to help illuminate us concerning what God thinks about himself. In each chapter, I will begin by presenting a common misconception of who God is. Specific reoccurring themes seem to invade our theologies. After describing these dangerous wiki submissions, I pray that through scriptural teaching, God will help to countermeasure our misunderstandings. We will arrive at what theologians call the biblical attributes of God. The attributes are specific characteristics taught in the Bible that help us understand the character and conduct of God. As we look at themes throughout Scripture that traces His heart and His hand, we will experience a fuller understanding of who He is. At the end of this offering, you hopefully won't be taking my word for it. My remarks are by far the most dispensable content within these pages. I want to present you with what the Bible teaches concerning theology, and you will have to wrestle with its claims. I have. There are specific attributes that are hard for me to accept because I have found out that God is not like me. He is utterly other than me. Within the whole counsel of God, we find that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are worshipped and revered. While God is reliable, He is rarely predictable. He doesn't always operate the way we think He should. At every stage within the redemptive narrative, God reveals His character more fully. With each stroke of inspired revelation, we behold a more glorious and somewhat surprising picture of who He really is. In many theological studies, scholars will divide God's attributes into a list of those which are communicable and incommunicable. Communicable attributes are those which He shares with humanity. God is love. Since we also have the capacity of love, so therefore the attribute of God is communicable. Incommunicable attributes are those that only God can possess. God is omniscient, which means he knows absolutely everything. Since we do not know everything, this attribute of omniscience is incommunicable. Due to God's otherness, I have to disagree with this commonly held distinction between the two categories. God's all-knowing ability compared to my scope of limited knowledge is just as vast in differentiation 
as his commitment to unwavering, unconditional love as compared to my expressions of frivolous, conditional love. Compared to God, all of his attributes are incommunicable when positioned side by side with the quality of one like me. God is entirely set apart from me. He is not only holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. To accept God as is, as portrayed in Scripture, is a challenge to my head, but a delight to my soul. When God's descriptions of God's character within God's Word confronts our claims to individualistic theorizations, we are each forced to respond. What will we do with this claim to truth? Will we accept God's Word or attempt to make it to fit our agenda? I had to choose, and so will you. You will decide to follow God the Maker or the God you make. Each of us will elect to marvel at the grand designer or esteem our grand design. I implore you to engage yourself with the biblical text concerning the attributes of God and allow its truth to remedy what theological infections are possibly poisoning your soul. I don't want your version of God. You don't need my version of God. We just desperately need God.